The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Oh, hello. Welcome. Um, it's wonderful to be here. And, uh, and my sharing of, of the little that I know really is a gift, and it, it's, it's my pleasure. Um, and it's really, you're giving me a gift by, by being here. And, uh, and all of us listening and sharing in the Dharma. It's, it's a gift that's uh, above all gifts that we give each other. So, so thank you for being here tonight, for your presence. So with that, um, I want to start by asking, um, are there any people who are new here tonight for the first time? Show of hands. One person. Welcome. Two. Three. Great. Great. Welcome. Welcome. And also another question I have is, how many people were here last week for the first session? Show of hands. Okay, bunch of people. Great, great. Thank you. Gives me a sense of continuity. So, so as you know, uh, as you may know, we're doing a um, four-week series on the four foundations of mindfulness, the Satipatthana Sutta, which is one of the core teachings, and we started last week. Uh, with the first, um, with the first satipatthana, having to do with the body and, and some introduction about the satipatthana sutta, and tonight we're going to continue with the second and the third. Next week we're going to do the fourth. The reason is the second and the third tend to be shorter instructions, so I figured I would cover them in, in one sitting, and, and the third one is pretty long, and I'll keep the fourth session, which is the last session, for an overview, and, 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 um, and also if, if, if there are leftover topics. So just giving you a lay of the land. So tonight our topics are the second and the third, the second being feeling tone, and the, the third satipatthana uh, being mind states. And as all of you were here during the guided instructions, as you noticed, I asked you, I invited you to notice the feeling tone of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral for sounds, body sensations, and exploring that in a way to prepare us for um, experientially for the teachings tonight so that we can relate to them, as well as mind states. That's the third satipatthana. And I ask you to notice your mind states, what is present, what's absent, what um, sensations in the body might give rise to some pointers as what's happening in the mind, or thought streams, and also asking what is my attitude, which is which is another way. So, so with that, actually, I would love to start by asking um, you if you would, if if anyone would uh, share a couple of observations about what they observed in the guided meditation. Something you didn't notice before was surprising to you, was interesting, was confusing, anything. If a couple of people would be willing to share, that would be that would be a great way to start for the whole community. Yeah. I noticed something that wasn't there. And I had the last couple of days I had was a um a walking stress ball. <clears throat> and and that walking stress ball attitude of mind was not there. And upon noticing that, I had um, definitely a, a positive response to that. Nice, nice. It's, it's great when one notices the absence of a negative mind state, and that, that's one way of practicing, to rejoice in a negative, to the, to the absence of a negative mind state. Nice, thank you. Any other observations? Anything? So you asked us to attend to sounds, and uh, I suddenly noticed that my ears were ringing. And um, and you were asking us to notice whether that was pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. Well, I expected it to be unpleasant. No one likes their ears ringing. Um, but my immediate reaction was, well, no, it's just it just is. It just, it's just this sound. And then um, 
then I noticed that I was interested in it, and that was pleasant. And then, um, and then I, I, then I noticed wanting it to go away, and the wanting it to go away was unpleasant. So that's just that little bit. Wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Just subtle states. We expected the ringing to be unpleasant, but it wasn't. And then the 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 uh, there was a pleasant state of actually noticing, having curiosity about it, and then wanting it to go away. That pushing away was unpleasant. Just l- lots of noticing of unpleasant. And p- Isn't that interesting? Isn't it? Pretty cool, yeah. Nice. Any other observations? Yeah. Did anyone notice um, the, the feeling tone changing for the same object? For example, if a sound was just neutral and then you started to really dislike it, and then you start to like it again, or something like that. Did anyone notice that? Yeah. If he used that. As I concentrated on the, the feeling of trying not to cough, it varied between I, I had a similar experience where I, it varied between unpleasant initially to neutral. It never got to pleasant, but it did. It was just interesting to watch the, the variations. Great, great. Something that tends to be un, unpleasant usually became neutral, but that sense of curiosity is just observing it. Nice, great. Nice. Any other comments? Let me move on. Okay, great. Thank you for for sharing. Um, these investigations tend to be really interesting um, and and surprising often when you notice the especially the feeling tone and as you don't expect it and seeing the impersonality. So so the feeling tone tends to be both both mental and also physical um, and also we don't mean emotions when we talk about feeling tones, just to be clear. I think we're already clear, but just in case it wasn't, emotions are much more complex. Um, there's energy, energy in the body, there's thought stream, you know, anger, for example, has energy in the body usually, has, has a storyline with it. It t- tends to be very complex. When, when, we talk ab- when, when we talk about feeling or feeling tone, or the Pali word is Vedana, it's just very simple. It's just that simple noticing pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Just, just very simple. Just very bare. It's, it's pretty much um, before every, every, the, the rest of the chain of thought and decisions and reactions arise. It's that, at that very beginning. And um, in fact, one way to think about it is evolutionarily developed for us to have a, a blink response of a, flight, uh, a fight or flight response. It's just sort of an evolutionary uh, shortcut. When you see something or someone right away, you might have a positive or negative reaction or a neutral reaction. So if you imagine our ancestors on the savanna, if they saw a, uh, a beast you know, a, a, uh, that, that was about to eat them, you know, right away if they had um, a negative negative sensation and a negative feeling tone then that would arise that that would give rise to the rest of the reactivity that then would would allow them to to fight or flight etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's that very simple liking disliking and um uh you may be familiar with the book by malcolm gladwell uh called blink that came out many years ago uh, about that moment that you make decisions without even knowing. So, so this relates to that because it's, it's that the f- without even knowing. If, if you don't notice it, you miss it. And we often miss it. We, we usually miss it if we don't bring attention to that really subtle like or dislike. And the first moment that we notice any object, whether it's a sound, a person, um, we often have a reaction and we often don't notice what it is. And the more we come in contact with that object, the reaction continues and continues until we become perhaps reactive and dis- really dislike it or really like it or whatever it is. But we, if, if we notice in that very first moment what our feeling tone is regarding an object, 
um, if, we have, if we develop a fine awareness of that, that can allow us uh, freedom because Vedana or feeling tone sits between contact, contact of the mind, contact aware- awareness with an object, whatever the object might be, sound, people, ideas, thoughts. So, so I call that objects, objects of the mind. So, it's, so, ve- so after you have contact, after your mind has contact with an object, then the moment after that, the, naturally, the feeling tone naturally arises before it gives rise to reactivity, perhaps to clinging, to like, I really like this, I really want it, or I really don't want it. By the time you get to tanha, which is the clinging, it's already solidified. So you have contact, you have feeling tone, and then you have tanha or the clinging which is either pushing away or really wanting something, which is the solidity. So between these two lies feeling tone, which is that really subtle uh, inclination of the mind, either movement towards or away, like it, dislike it. And it's pretty subtle at that point. And that, at that point, you still have freedom. So if you notice what, what it was, whether you like something or dislike something, then it's easier not to get into the reactivity later and really understand what your relationship is about, um, about things. It really introduces a level of, of self-knowledge, uh, both about yourself and about others. When you practice, when you really start practicing noticing your feeling tone about objects just on daily basis, both on the cushion, noticing as you're sitting, thoughts come, don't like this thought, don't like that thought, oh, like this thought, mm, don't feel that much, you know, neutral about that, oh, this sound, I like it, this sound. So, so when you train yourself to really notice the feeling tone, then you'll be walking around actually noticing all the, the subtle reactions you have in the world as you're walking around. And it, it's quite revealing it, it, it like opens the door to um, to experiences that are sort of on a subtle level that we usually don't see, but control and really uh, drive our habit patterns and drive our behavior. So um, it's really a syst- the systematic development of of seeing the the feeling tone and becoming sensitive to it. Um, can really give rise to an intuitive mode of both understanding yourself and also understanding others and situations. Because then you see, like, oh, these subtle likings and dislikings. Um, and I can say uh, that um, I've, I pr- I've practiced noticing feeling tones on, on um, meditation retreats. And it's been pretty profound when I've come home and I've just noticed all these subtle reactions I have to everything, every moment. It's just eye-opening. Um, and you don't have to go on a meditation retreat in order to practice this. You can practice it on the cushion in your daily sitting and then, and then practice it as you're walking around, as you're noticing things. Allow yourself to, to be aware. Just bring attention. Um, and... Sometimes you might note you might have to unroll you know go back in a moment like you notice you really dislike something you're really upset and like why is that you sort of unroll your mind and you just ah I had a neg- I had a subtle negative reaction to this thing well why was that hmm. you, you you see so much more than you didn't see um, so so the re- one the reason why um, the uh, the feeling tone. Ha, is one of the Satipatthanas. There's a second one. It seems like a pretty simple practice, but it has its own teaching. You know, it, it does, like if you were here last week, we we talked about the practices for the body, and there were so many. There were six practices for the body. There were sensations. There was breath. There was uh, contemplating the corpse. Contem- contem- uh, contemplating the the um, four elements, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the feeling tone is just. It seems like it's a simple instruction, and yet it deserves it. It deserves to be one whole satipatthana. Why is that? Let's think about it. It must be really important to deserve a whole teaching in and of itself. And it is. It's a really, really powerful practice. Um, and because it sits between contact with the object, 
like opening your eyes and seeing something. And before tanha, before clinging, really liking, disliking, before, when, before you get caught in, in that cycle of suffering, it's, um, first of all, it's, easy, it's really easy to notice when you practice it. You'll see that it's pretty easy to notice. Many of you, I'm sure, at least noticed it for a moment during our sitting. You notice some positive or negative or neutral about something. So it's really easy to notice, relatively speaking. So beside it being relatively easy to notice, it's also, it, it, it's the way to, it's, it's at a crucial place to break the link in the chain of dependent origination, of going round and round and round and round. So it's the easiest place of breaking the link before you get caught. By the time you get caught, it's much harder. It's already solidified. It's like, I hate this, I hate this, I, I love this, I love this, I want it. Before you get to that point, when you notice just the subtle movement of the mind, it's, it's still pretty soft, still pretty fluid. There's still a lot of room for, for flexibility. So bring awareness to that. Um, it also, um, seeing, seeing that the, the feeling tone is, is so dependent on, um, on the type of contact, on the contact with the external stimuli. It's not so much, um, it's, it, it's, there is an impersonal nature about it. The same stimuli that could, could be pleasant, the next moment could be unpleasant. Something that you expect it to be pleasant could be unpleasant or neutral. So there is that um, impersonality of the object. You don't always like that sound. Sometimes you're going to hate that sound. Sometimes you're going to love that sound. It's impersonal. It changes. It changes all the time. It's not permanent. So seeing that is another way to practice, to see that things are not permanent. So, so um, I've had this experience quite a bit, actually, um, listening to the tick-tock of the clock, for, especially when you're sleeping, at, you know, you're a guest at somebody's house and they, they forgot to take the clock, you forgot to take the clock down and tick-tock, you know, it just goes and goes and goes. Years, like decades ago before I practiced, I remember listening to, you know, situations where this would happen, I would just listen and it would just get on my nerves more and more and more and the feeling of irritation and, and oh, I can't stand this, oh, I forgot to do it. And, and now it's interesting because observing an unpleasant sound and, and seeing that it can become actually pleasant after a while. Like, wow, that's, that's the best sound I've ever heard. I've, I've even experimented with this with, um, with um, uh, uh, the sound of jackhammers. I have. And, and it works. It, it's pretty amazing what, what you think would be the most unpleasant sound it's just a sound. It's just a sound, and the feeling tone can really change. It can become pleasant, the best sound you've ever heard. It's like symphonies, like music. Wow, that's an intense sound. Wow, never heard that before. Um, so in the, um, in the Visuddhi Maga, actually, um, uh, in, in, um, in the path of purification, um, it is said that the only sensation, the only sense door that has, uh, that has a fixed feeling tone about it is the body, is, is, the, is, is pain, for example. When you have a sensation, when you have a piercing, for example, needle, well, it's unple- it, it, inherently it could be unpleasant. A sensation of the body could be inherently pleasant or unpleasant. However, the other four senses, seeing smelling, tasting, and hearing do not have an inherent positiveness or negativeness about them. It's just the state of mind that determines if something is pleasant or unpleasant. That's a pretty big statement if you really contemplate it because we go through our lives disliking or liking so many sensory inputs. Okay, pain, special circumstance, or a physical sensation, but everything else, all the sounds that we hate when you're on, on an airplane and, and you know, uh, crying children is just your mind. It's just your mind. It's just a sound. It's just a sound. It's just 
waveform in the air, just hitting your, the, your eardrum and, and moving your inner hair cells. It's just, it's just a stimulus. It's not inherently pleasant or unpleasant. Um, I've experimented with that as well, by the way, just sharing all my own experiments, being on an airplane and, and crying babies. And it's, just, it's just the sound and seeing, for example, this, this poor woman next to me. She was going crazy. She was suffering so much from the sound of the crying baby. She was holding her ears and, and, and holding her head. And just, she was going crazy. And, and was having, uh, was feeling bad for her. And, and thinking, I wish everyone could, ha- could benefit from the practice that we're learning, that we know that that really um, helps us deal with, with various sounds and, and you name it in the environment that often people consider to be unpleasant because it's just inherently not. It's just our perception. What did you do with your feelings about hers? Oh, compassion. <laughs> I was feeling so sorry. Uh, compassion. Yeah. Because she was suffering, she was suffering so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also, I was I was feeling compassion for the parents of the crying baby, because they probably felt awful. They really, both you know, a, a, a petulant child as well as the whole plane probably feeling responsible for that. So a lot of suffering when we don't see the reactivity. When we see that it's just the state of the mind. Inherently, none of this is. It's unpleasant. It's just the state of the mind. It's what we associate with it. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so feelings are also an important teaching because um, as they, they lie between the contact and craving, as we talked about, they also serve as the underlying um, basis for motivation and action and our views um, in life. So um, in, in Buddhism, uh, what's, what's, profo- what's one thing that's profound about Buddhist teachings is, is really um, noticing the underpinnings of psychological views. That is, seeing what is beyond a view, what's, what's, what, is, what is underneath a, um, a strong belief. What is underneath a strong belief? And often, um, in a, 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 what is underneath a strong belief is a desire or, or clinging, which at first started as a feeling tone. So feeling tones solidify as clinging and then solidify as your view as strong beliefs about something. So the chain can continue. Um, and usually that's easier to see in others than to see it in yourself, I would say. I mean, you can see in others, oh, the other, the other you know, so-and-so has a very strong belief, you know, attachment to this view, and you can see where perhaps they're clinging or they're, they, they, they have a, um, a desire, there's a manifestation of a cling or a desire in them. It's usually harder to see it in ourselves. But I invite you, if you have a strong, um, strongly held um, um, view about something. S- just investigate, not to get rid of. Just investigate what's underneath it. What's underneath it? So, um, I'd like to speak a little bit before moving on to talking about mind. I'd like to speak a little more about pleasant, unpleasant, and uh, neutral feelings specifically as pointers. And by the way, if you have questions, feel free to, to interrupt me anytime. Um, so speaking of, of pleasant feelings, um, I want to highlight that obviously the reason why we're trying to notice the, um, the uh, feeling tone, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, it's not to be a killjoy. It's not to, to get rid of all the pleasant feelings. I must not have pleasant feelings. I'm, I'm, I'm a Buddhist. So, so there is an importance of joy in our practice. And in fact, um, there is a high place in, for, for non-sensual, non-sensual joy um, as a source of realization in this practice. So 
um, as the Buddha was practicing uh, himself towards towards his enlightenment, um, as he sat under the Bodhi tree and he was practicing and practicing very ardently, very intensely, what led, what really catapulted him and led him to, to his awakening was when he remembered, he had a memory, he, has a, he had a felt sense of a memory when he was a child and he was lying in the fields um, in a, in a, uh, with a feeling of contentment and joy and bliss in a state of absorption. And remembering the ease of that joy, uh, lying in the fields and, and, and um, watching the workers, when he remembered that, he realized that that feeling of joy is wholesome. And bringing that into his practice, that's what allowed him to, to move into states of, of deep realization and, and enlightenment. So there is a there's quite a, an important uh, non-sensual joy not, that comes from deep calm uh, and, um, and states of concentration. And there is a l- big difference between uh, hedonic pleasure, joy, which you just have for a moment and it goes away. You have, a, you have some ice cream, it tastes wonderful and it gives you joy and then it goes away and then it's, it's dukkha again. And the eudaimonic, the inherent sense of joy from, say, living a life of blamelessness, from, um, uh, from um, uh, feeling a sense of contentment about your moral behavior, reflecting on your good behavior, reflecting on generosity. It's, it's a different sense of joy that comes from a, an, an intrinsic sense of peace and blamelessness compared to the hedonic sense of joy of, of objects that you enjoy. So having said that, coming back to the pleasant feelings, um, they're not to be gotten rid of. They do place an important play, uh, place in, in, in the practice. So unpleasant feelings. So unpleasant feelings are um, not to be um, self-afflicted. So, so the middle path that, that the Buddha t- uh, taught uh, and, um, and we, we follow is, is, is the path between worldly pleasures and, and, and basking in them and um, only following them and self-mortification. So it's the, the, middle, the middle path of seeing. So um, in terms of practical practice for either on the cushion or actually in daily life, um, what often happens is that as, as lay practitioners, well, actually as human beings, um, a lot of times we try to suppress, so, so negative feelings arise, uh, unpleasant feelings arise. We don't like them. We really, really don't like them. We don't like to feel whatever they are. So we either suppress them, we distract ourselves, um, and we often try to mask them by pleasant feelings. See if any of this sounds familiar. Eating something nice, ice cream or something pleasant, whatever is your, your, your joyous, you know, your, your pleasant, uh, pleasant food when you're not feeling good. Anyone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, it, can, it can be also basis for addiction when people have a lot of negative feelings in life to suppress, to distract from the negative um, sensations and try to mask them with positive ones. So bringing awareness, bringing awareness to, to that negative Vedana, negative feeling tone of something unpleasant and just seeing it for what it is, not suppressing it, but just seeing, ah, that's what it is, and just noticing it with a sense of curiosity, um, can be um, can be a way for it to be neutralized. Otherwise, it will be suppressed. Otherwise, it will be covered by other active behavior that that's not um, that's not really um, helpful. Um, another thing I want to talk about, as I referred to earlier, regarding um, an unpleasant uh, 
an inherently unpleasant feeling, which could be that of pain, which is the physical sensations of pain. So pain and, um, and illness, even though they're unpleasant, they can be a resource, a source of realization and insight in a couple of ways. I mean, well, in many ways, but two that I'm going to, to, to discuss now. One is that um, when there is a lot of pain in the body, if one is able to separate the, um, the attitude about the pain, oh, I, hi- I hate it, I want it to go away, this is unpleasant, if one can let go of, of that and just focus on the physical sensations of the pain, of the pain, and many, many uh, meditators can, can do that. Just the physical sensation of the pain itself can act as a very, very strong object for, for concentrating the mind, for stabilizing the mind. Um, I've known of other practitioners who have developed very strong concentration because they've had a lot of physical pain. And I can tell you that, that for myself also, I've, had, I've dealt with Lyme disease and I've had a lot of physical pain. And um, really just focusing on the sensation of the pain has allowed my mind to really settle and focus on states of, of, uh, of samadhi, of, of concentration, with just the sensation of the pain. Because there is so much going on in the body when you notice, when you, when you bring your mind to it. It's, it's like fireworks. There are just all these sensations of, of heat and pain and stabbing and this and that. It's just, it, it keeps the mind focused. It, the mind is not going to wander. It's just that's where it stays. So this is one way that pain and illness and, and physical pain can serve to really stabilize the mind and and then the relationship with the with the pain and the illness can really really change. Um, another way that it can be helpful is uh, can can serve practice physical pain is uh, with non-identification with the pain. When you when when one can see that the pain arises and passes away, and and it's it's so impersonal. There is there is lack of control over the state of the body. Um, taking it all this personally. So um, one thing that I uh, I would like to to mention about neutral feelings. I already mentioned that in the Abhidhamma, only touch has inherent positive or negative um, Vedana, feeling tone. And, and the other four senses um, is just what our mind overlays on the experience. They're not inherently positive or negative. Um, one thing to notice about, um, about neutral um, uh, tones, uh, feeling tone is that... Um, we often don't notice them. They're all around. There's so many things that your mind is noticing about this room, about people, about me. And, you know, you don't have reaction towards everything, right? Only to some things. So the, the, the neutral feeling tone is harder to notice. And the way to notice that, um, I tell you a trick, is to notice the absence of positive or negative. And, and the mind can be, become more refined when you actually allow it to notice the, 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 the neutral feeling tone as well. Because it's kind of bland. The mind kind of checks out. But if you notice it, then it, it allows more refinement of the mind. So um, one of the instructions in the commentaries about noticing the, new, uh, the, the feeling tone uh, is um, who feels who is the one inside? Who is? Who, who feels? I invite you to, to drop that in your meditation, in your sitting practice, and experiment with it. Don't have to come up with an intellectual answer or any answer. Just drop it in and see what comes up. 
So, so with that, I'd like to move on to talking about the third satipatthana, which is the mind. And then I would also still like to leave some time for questions and comments. So let's move on with the mind. Um, so, um, <clears throat> noticing the states of mind is, is more refined. So, so as I was mentioning last week, for those of you who, who were here and may remember, um, the Satipatthana teachings are laid out from the coarser to the more refined. So the first one being the body. The body is, you can feel your body, oh, sensation, movement. It's easier to, to sense. Feeling tone is a little more subtle. And that's the second Satipatthana. The third one being states of mind, yet is a little more subtle than the body, right? States of mind, feelings in the body. They're not obviously impossible to notice. We notice them all the time, right? We notice that we're sleepy, we're anxious, you know, what's what state of the mind is. And yet sometimes it can be very difficult to notice our state of mind. Um, so... Um, For example, um, sometimes at night when I notice that there are a lot of, um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about something and then there are a lot of negative thoughts coming up. And from experience, I know that, oh, I must be really tired. And I like this quote of the difference between hope and despair is a good night's sleep. So whenever I find myself getting really upset and cranky late at night, I stop myself from thinking about whatever important topic I need to figure out before going to bed, uh, that you're tired. And, and when you wake up in the morning, it'll, just, it'll, it'll be a different mindset. But, but it's so hard to see sometimes that, oh, the mind is tired. I can only tell from the, the negative thoughts that are coming up that, oh, I must be tired. So states of mind can be subtle. Um, it's, it's like being a fish in the water and you don't see the water that you're swimming in. Um, and also a lot of times it's easier perhaps to see the states of minds of others than ourselves. Um, I'll talk about that more in a moment. But, but also, also, have you noticed that... Um, you might have a state of mind that's just angry or, or irritable, and you're just looking around, your mind is looking around for some object to be upset and angry about. Has anyone noticed that ever? <laughs> okay, I take that as a yes, yeah. Or, or when, when you're happy, just everything seems great. Oh, the weather is great, and the food is great. And just, you know, there's happiness in the mind, and, 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 and whatever object comes to... To, in contact with awareness. Ah, so noticing what is the state of mind. Noticing is, is such a strong practice. Uh, it's more subtle, but it's, it's such a, um, really such a profound practice to know what our state of mind, mind is. And um, by repeatedly observing our state of mind really allows us to, to deactivate uh, the, the patterns of habit that our, our minds have, the states of mind that we often get into, because we all have a set of grooves. You know, I tend to be you know, in these set of states usually, and those I usually don't visit. You know, my mind has, has these set grooves, these neural patterns that, that have really become deep and that those are the set of states that I get into just by seeing them, not, not trying to change anything. I mean, the, the, the part of the practices that we've been talking about tonight, and maybe I've been implicit about it, um, is not to change anything. The first step is just to observe, is just to observe, because if the intention is to, to see it and change it, then... Um, habit patterns become suppressed, but by just seeing, noticing, oh, there it is again, with impersonality. Uh, oh, there it is again. Oh, there is that state of mind again. Oh, I see you. I see it. Then it helps, um, it helps slowly 
loosen it and lose its power. Um, one way that it's it's uh, likened, uh, that, that, that a simile is like, uh, um, instead of walking fast, you might be walking, you know, somebody's walking really, really fast, just out of habit. And then if they notice they're walking fast for no reason, they might slow down and walk more slowly. And then they might notice, actually, I want to sit or lie down. It's just bringing attention to what is will naturally take the fuel out. You don't have to actively try to do it or try to like straighten yourself out. But just by noticing what is happening naturally will take the fuel out. Um, it's really helpful to, to notice our state of mind, especially when there is um, suffering in the mind. Because um, a lot of times, I think, in the West, when there is suffering in the mind, our tendency might be to say, well, buck up, you know, suck it up. You. Instead, when you notice that there's, there's this tenderness, there's this vulnerability, how about uh, bringing in compassion? Oh dear, this is hard. Sweetie, this is hard. Being, so it takes awareness of when you're actually hurting and when you're vulnerable and when it's a difficult patch. So being aware of states of mind allows you to see it and perhaps do something skillful by bringing compassion to do that. But if you cannot see your state of mind, then you can't then you're just go, you know walking fast, you're in your habit pattern. So Developing, so, so practicing awareness of the state of mind is, is, is profound practice. That's what I'm trying to get across. These satipatthanas are really profound practices for, for really good reasons. Um, so one way that um, Utejaniya, a, a well-known monk, teaches uh, uh, awareness of states of mind is by repeatedly asking, what is your attitude? What is the attitude? And that's a wonderful and simple way that you can practice as well throughout the day. Just keep asking yourself, what is the attitude? What is my attitude? And you'll surprise yourself. I'm, I'm willing to bet you will surprise yourself when you see what the attitude in the mind is. It's a profound practice. So as pointers, I like to offer um, asking yourself, what is my attitude? What is the state of mind? Um, throughout the day, not just on the cushion, when you're trying to have more refined states of, uh, observe more refined states of mind. Um, I wanted to say one last thing before opening it to, to discussion um, and comments regarding seeing the, um, the humbling practice of seeing our own states of mind and seeing our own motivations. Uh, it can be a humbling practice because often it's much harder for us to see our own state of mind or perhaps our own biases than, than to see others. Um, it is a quote from, from uh, the Dhammapada. It is easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own. A man winnows his neighbor's faults like chaff, but conceals his own as a cunning gambler conceals die. So um, in, there was an interesting book that came out a few years ago called The Happiness Hypothesis by Jonathan Haidt. I don't know if you can, yeah, I see some, some people nodding their heads. Really interesting book. I recommend it. Um, and there's a chapter in there about the faults of others, which is pretty amazing, um, in, interesting. And basically talks about how it's so much harder for us to see our own faults and our own um, states of mind in a way, our own faults than, than others. Evolutionarily, it's difficult. And, and he lists lots of different experiments. Um, one of the experiments that I wanted to report, which very interesting, is um, so they recruited a bunch of um, college students from a psychology course. And um, uh, they told them that they were part of a team of two. 
there wasn't a team of two, it was just a team of one. And they said the other person is in the other room. So, so they got to choose, the people in the experiment, these subjects, got to choose um, whether um, they would get, say, some you know, lottery ticket winnings or something, or whether their partner in the other room would get it. They would get to decide. And the experimenter suggested to them the best way to go ahead to, to decide this is by flipping a coin, just so that it's, it's random. It's either you or the other person. And they were provided with a coin, which was in a paper bag. So um, 50% of the participants um, um, opened the bags. So half of them opened the bags, half of them didn't bother to open the bags. Okay, so for the half of the people who opened the bag, who did not open the bags, 90% of them, of them chose themselves over the other person. Okay. Now, the 50% who did open the bag and supposedly did use the coin, and the coin is fair coin, so 50-50, the chances should have been... 50% should have, should have chosen themselves, 50% should have chosen the others, the other people. Still, 90% of them chose themselves. So that's interesting. So even though they did the morally right thing of opening the bag and using the coin, they still made up an excuse for choosing themselves. Now it gets more interesting. So... Um, since this was a psychology course, a few weeks before, they had uh, asked these students to fill out a questionnaire about their tendencies. And it turns out those who, um, who cared more for others and cared more for social responsibility were more likely to open the bags to get the coin out and do their moral thing. But still, they they still chose the decision to benefit them. Whatever the coin said, they were more likely to, to um, favor themselves. So this is known as moral hypocrisy. And we often see it in others, and we don't see it in ourselves. So the only way that the experimenters were able to bring the, the odds back to 50-50 for, for the people who opened the bags instead of 90-10 was if they placed a large mirror in the room so that people would see themselves and they, they emphasized the importance of fairness in the instructions. So this, by this, so this is the only way they were able to really bring some moral... So to, 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 to clear the blind spot of moral hypocrisy for people who thought they cared about others and social justice. So I leave that with you because I think it's much harder for us to see our own blind spots. And, you know, they're normal people. They're just like us. It's harder for us to see our own blind spots. And seeing our mental states um, can be quite humbling practice. Um, again, I've done it, and it can be quite humbling when you question your own motives and you really bring them under the microscope. Wow, am I really trying to just be kind? Is, is there no personal interest in there? So um, I encourage you to experiment with that as well. So with that, we just have very few minutes left, and I would love to hear any comments or questions from, from what you think. So. Yeah, I have a question. Um, when you're talking about an angry state of mind, is that the same thing as anger as a feeling, or do you do you uh, draw a distinction between the feeling and the state of mind? So, when, when you're asking about feeling, you mean feeling tone, uh, or I the feeling tone was only pleasant or yes, unpleasant? Exactly. So, but yes. so anger is. Um, so when you're talking about anger as a state of mind, right. it's what we commonly refer to right. as anger as a feeling. Okay. Right. So, so actually, so I'm glad you, you asked that, because anger could be an emotion, which could be... Uh, an emotion, uh, yeah, right. could be an emotion. Oh, oh God, Sorry right. Yeah. That, yeah. No, it's good. Right, so, so um, anger could be experienced as an emotion, 
right, as, as a state of, of anger about a particular topic, having, which, which will, accompany, will be accompanied by physical sensation, a storyline, so it can be a very... A reaction. A reaction, exactly. But I guess the way I was talking about anger is, <clears throat> is also just the state of being kind of cranky or like aversive. Maybe aversive would be a better name. Being in a state of aversiveness, I think that would be a better way to describe it, which doesn't necessarily have the, the fire, the physical manifestation of energy, of anger, and, and, and a storyline. It's just a state of mind that's aversive. So, so yes, thank you for asking that. I, I, I should have been clear. Any last-minute comments? Yeah. I love the Charlie Chaplin movie, uh, City Lights. And um, uh, as some of you will know, um, one of the characters is uh, a very beautiful young woman who's blind. And Charlie Chaplin, the homeless tramp, falls in love with her. He's trying to raise money to send her to Europe uh, for an operation to restore her eyesight. He uh, finally makes a little bit of money and wants to, uh, not enough, but, but some, and, and he starts to uh, give it to her, and she can't see. And so she doesn't know how much she's, he's giving to her, and he starts to pull back and save some of it for himself. And he, then he goes, oh, and gives her the whole thing, and that was just great because you could, I could see myself in that. Uh, there, there was that moment of wanting <laughs> for myself. And there's some place in the movie where she does, she's this angelic thing. You know, she seems perfect. And then, she, and then you see um, a moment where she just, uh, you know, a very human emotion goes over her face and, and she can be selfish too. So I, I thought it was... Uh, these were just split-second moments in the movies, but I saw myself in them. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think we can all see ourselves in that, can't we? Yeah. So thank you for that comment, and it's 9 o'clock, so thank you so much for being here tonight and your attention. I hope this was of some help. <laughs>